0: Hey, This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. All right, welcome. Monday night, Against the Stream. We will... Um... Have a period of meditation, then some talk and discussion. And we'll jump right into the sitting tonight. So uh, find a way to sit that's upright, relaxed. Take a moment to adjust your posture. And as you're ready, allowing our eyes to close. softening the belly, the jaw, the eyes. Taking a moment to establish the inner aspiration, the inner attitude. Trying to bring a sense of kindness, friendliness, patience, perseverance, and acceptance to the meditation practice, with the intention to be kind and accepting of whatever happens, directing our attention into the body, present time, non-judgmental awareness of the body, establishing mindfulness here and now, disengaging from future plans, Hopes, fears, past memories, and engaging fully with the present moment to moment experience of the body sitting, breathing. Buddhism teaches that we experience six sense doors where information phenomena is perceived that of hearing and you can be mindful of hearing smelling and tasting nostrils and tongue. And seeing even with the eyes closed. And thinking, perceiving consciousness with the mind. And lastly, the body, feeling, physical sensations. And although all of these sense doors, part of our mindfulness practice, generally begin by Focusing the attention on a chosen part of our experience. Most commonly, the breath. Breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Breathing out. Paying close attention to the sensations that the breath creates at the nostrils, chest or belly. We could also choose to use sound as the primary object. Listening to the arising and passing of sounds, both internal and external. Present time awareness of hearing. The attention gets drawn back into thinking about the past or future without judgment, with friendliness, choosing to come back to the present time experience in the body, disengage from the thoughts, return to the breath or to sound. If you're new to the practice, it's okay to continue using an anchor experience like the breath or hearing. Even if you've been practicing for some time and you feel like just concentrating tonight, that's fine. The Buddha's instructions become more and more inclusive inviting us to bring mindfulness to our whole being experiencing this body as the four elements knowing that this body subject to impermanence was made up of many parts Sometimes we experience that by scanning the attention from head to toe, becoming aware of skin and bone, organs. As we open to the sense doors and the mind, the emotions. Observing and coming to understand the impermanent nature of all of our experience, constantly changing sounds and sensations, thoughts and feelings, arising and passing. Getting a sense of the impersonal nature, how the body just breathes all by itself. The mind thinks all by itself. Not as much agency, not as much control as we like to think. Encouragement is to connect and sustain rather than letting your attention just bounce all over the place from thinking to feeling, hearing to seeing. When something calls for your attention, a thought arises. Observe the beginning, middle, and end of that thought if you can. Or the sound Arises, is known by hearing consciousness, and then the sound passes, dissolves. Likewise with sensations or emotions. One thing at a time, received, known, experienced. Thank you. The next level is to investigate the feeling tone of what's happening moment to moment as we receive sounds and sensations, thoughts and feelings. Investigating what does this sound feel like? Is it pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? When your mind is involved in a plan or a memory. Fantasy. Identifying. Investigating. Is that a pleasant thought? Or is it painful, unpleasant, annoying? Every sensation, every emotion, every experience at the sense doors is perceived, however subtly, as being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Look for this in your meditation. Use your mind to reflect, to contemplate. What's this feel like? Mindfulness is asking for us to participate in what's happening without becoming entangled or too identified in what the mind is doing. Not a detached observation, but an engaged response when you identify pain in the heart or mind or body. Responding with compassion as much as you can in this moment. Softening the belly, releasing the jaw, breathing into the discomfort with tolerance and mercy. When our experience is pleasant, participating, responding by enjoying it without clinging, letting go as the pleasant experience arises and passes. Taking a moment to reflect on uh, what your mind was just doing, how you were relating to it. What uh, level of, there's that sort of radical acceptance of ourselves just as we are, but of course we do have a goal. The goal is to become more kind and more wise and less attached and less aversive. And so uh, after meditating, it's good to sort of reflect on like, okay, like what's happening in my formal meditation practice? How much of the time am I lost in thought? And all of us are some of the time. Uh, How much of the time am I aversive? Am I getting more... Accepting, more friendly. I know that I noticed over the years of meditation that my internal uh, dialogue started to change. My um, the sort of tone, my, <laughs> my self-talk uh, softened. It was very harsh when I first started meditating. There was a real kind of critical, harsh inner voice. And then over the kind of months and years of practice, still critical sometimes, but even when it's critical, it's not as sharp as it used to be. There's something about the practice that kind of softens the edges. Many of you have heard me talk about the uh, sangha, the community as a rock tumbler, that we all come in with jagged edges. And then we have our conflicts and our, you know, communications and trying to practice wise speech and and a lot of forgiveness. And and then we sort of smooth out our edges. Um, I feel like there's something like that, that also happens with our own in- attention, and the more we encourage forgiveness and the more we uh, incline our minds towards compassion, there's some internal smoothing that happens of the of the heart and mind. So I, I um I just cracked open the one of the books, one of the suttas today. I had a break between client sessions, things that I was doing, and um, I do it often, and there's, you know, I don't know if everybody knows, but the suttas are like, there's five big books like this. One, two, yeah, I think five big books, Um, and it's a lot, and a lot of the times when I open up the suttas, I don't love it, I have to be honest. I open it, and I'm just like, did the Buddha really teach this shit (laughs) because so much of it is religious kind of, you know, uh, my sense for what it's worth, and I don't really know what the fuck I'm talking about, but my sense is that like some percentage of what's in these books that's called the words of the Buddha is pretty close to what the guy taught. Um, you know this stuff was chanted it was an oral tradition it was chanted for 200 years before they said we better write this shit down <laughs> and so by the time it got written down like the power the patriarchy the you know the the hierarchy of uh you know was firmly in place and they, they said something like um i forget but i think at, at one point there was over a hundred different buddhist uh sex traditions you know and and every and every sect was like no no this is what he meant no no this is what he meant (laughs) uh you know like in every religion you know most maybe most of us are most uh familiar with the sort of american christian you know the baptists and the uh you know catholics and the uh, uh you know protestants and you know how religion turns into all of these different same thing happened in Buddhism. And then like who gets to like write it down? Like <laughs> usually, you know, whoever's most powerful at, at the time or whatever. So anyways, the Theravada um, is the recording of that school that said, this is, you know, what we remember, what we've been chanting. And there is something somewhat reliable about oral tradition. Everything's chanted in triplica. You say the same thing. It's one of the reasons why it's not that fun to read this shit is because it's so repetitive because they actually wrote down what they had been saying over and over and over. So there might be three pages to get to the point. (laughs) Um, Anyways, I'm going off on something that most people aren't that interested in probably. Anyways, I opened the book today, and uh, I liked what I read for the most part, so I'll share it with you. It starts with, and all of these are written down with uh, this sort of scene where it's like, um, this one starts with, thus have I heard, which means it was one of the things that uh, Ananda, Ananda was the Buddha's, uh, nephew, nephew or cousin and he was his attendant and Ananda had a photographic memory and he just everything that he heard the Buddha said say he just re- recalled perfectly and then they you know, chanted it for 200 years and then they wrote it down <laughs> so it says thus have I heard on one occasion the Buddha the blessed one was dwelling at Alava Alavai I love, I don't I can't pronounce it. The haunt of a Yaka Alavayaka. Then the Yaka Alavayaka approached the Buddha and said to him, Get out. <laughs> he, he called him an ascetic, you know, which is the kind of which is sort of a diss to the Buddha at this point. He, like asceticism was what the Buddha was practicing before he became enlightened, where it's like that really extreme level of uh, renunciation. And so this, and a yaka, technically a yaka is some kind of um, forest spirit. So anyways, let's context, who knows, but (laughs) there's some good shit in here. And so this, like forest spirit comes to the Buddha and he says, get out. And the Buddha says, all right, friend. And he walked away. And then... The yaka said, come in. And he came back in and, and the Buddha came and they said, all right, friend, came back in. And then he's like, no, 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 get out. And he went back and forth three times. Of course, it's always three times. Like, get out, come in, get out. And then finally, the fourth time, the yaka, Alavaka said to the blessed one, Buddha, get out, ascetic. The Buddha replied to him, I won't go out, friend. Do whatever you have to do. He's just like, fuck you, I'm staying. I'm not playing this in and out game. And the, the yaka says, I'll ask you a question, ascetic. If you won't answer me, I'll drive you insane. I'll split your heart and I'll grab you by the feet and I'll hurl you across the Ganges. The Buddha replies, I don't see anyone in this world, friend, with its devas and maras and Brahma, in this generation with its ascetics and Brahmins, its devas and humans who could drive me insane or split my heart or grab me by the feet and hurl me across the Ganges, but ask whatever you want, friend. (laughs) It's just a little battle. He's like, yeah, good luck with that. Drive me insane. So he asks. said what here in in this world what here is a man's best treasure what practice well-being what practice well brings happiness what is really the sweetest of tastes and how lives the one who they say lives best One of the buddha then replies faith here is a man's best treasure so I want to pause for a moment. I'll give you all of the answers. I'll maybe I'll give you the answers, and then I'll reflect on it. It says, faith is a man's best treasure. The Dhamma, practiced well, brings happiness. Truth is really the sweetest of tastes. And one living by wisdom, they say, lives best. So it's uh, truth, practicing the Dharma, and faith, and living by wisdom. You're kind of these in these replies now he starts with faith and he goes on he he talks about faith a couple more times here i pause because the word faith is like has like a bad taste in my mouth personally i don't i don't like the word faith um partially because my own connotation even even with buddhism but uh is that sometimes faith i don't know i feel like faith is the Defined, or I define it sometimes as um, believing something that's not true. (laughs) Um, Just have faith in something that, like, I just feel like it's in religion, it's just used of like, just blindly believe something that may or may not be true. And I feel like, especially in the, you know, Western theistic religions, there's this sort of like, believe this shit, it's totally not true, but have faith. Um, I can get my mind around, and I don't know what the Pali word was that's translated as faith here, but if I replace faith with confidence, have confidence, um, or if we're talking about a faith that is verified, one of the things I love about Buddhism is that it's saying, see for yourself. Try it. See for yourself if it works. If it works, then uh, trust that you're uh, going in the right direction. There's the the famous teaching um, when, you know, the Buddha is actually confronted when he's talking about faith. He's confronted by these villagers. And they say, why should we believe you? Why should we have faith in your teaching? There was some other guru here last week trying to sell us some other path. And, you know, there's always somebody's saying, believe us. And he's saying, don't believe me. He he replies, he says, don't believe me, but try the Dharma, try any spiritual teaching that you hear, try it for yourself and then trust your own direct experience. Does this lead to less suffering? Does this lead to the end of suffering? Does this lead to wisdom? And and when you find out, not based on charismatic presentation or not because it's in some fucking book, not because your parents believed it or your ancestors believed it, but when you know for yourself out of your own direct experience, then you can have faith. And so I can get my mind around that verified faith. Like for me, I've got a lot of faith in the Dharma and Buddhism because I've directly experienced the benefits. I know because I've been applying this for a long time. I'm like, oh, it works pretty good. You know, I actually, we can actually learn to forgive ourselves and to forgive others. We can, you know, learn uh, directly how impersonal the mind is and and not suffer so much about what the mind is doing or not doing. Or So I have a lot of faith, but I don't like it when it's presented as believe this based on just believe it. I had my own little reaction to that. You can find, you know, where your own, uh, does faith feel like your best treasure? I put it way down the list for me. It doesn't feel like the best for me. There's another place where the, just after the Buddha's awakening, where he says, how did I get here? He said, first I had faith it was possible. So again, I want to think confidence. He said, first I, I felt Like I had some internal knowing, some internal confidence that it was possible to end suffering, to be happy in this lifetime. Second line, the Dharma practiced well brings happiness. So when we, you know, not believing in the Dharma, but when we practice the first noble truth of turning towards the suffering in our lives, turning towards the suffering in the world, the second noble truth, practicing, turning towards and seeing clearly the causes of suffering, are craving, our aversion, our self-centered clinging. I, me, mean mine causes suffering. Practice that. See it. Know it for yourself. And then the truth is really the sweetest of tastes. Honesty, the truth. Uh, I don't know. I, I like it. It sounds good. Sometimes uh, the truth feels a little bitter <laughs> when we look at this world. But there's something about being integ- in integrity and being honest that even if it's uncomfortable, even if it is a bit bitter, it's you know it's the highest form of communication, the highest form of being the truth. One living by wisdom, they say, lives the best. The wisdom, there's lots of different ways we could talk about wisdom, but even if we just keep living by the wisdom of the three characteristics, everything is impermanent. If we could really live our lives in harmony with the reality, with the wisdom of impermanence, how much less would you suffer? If you weren't, cling, you know, because impermanence and knowing impermanence means non-attachment. Because if you really knew it was impermanent, you wouldn't cling to it, to them, to whatever it is that is causing some suffering. Uh, living uh, by wisdom of uh, anatta, of not-self, of not uh Self-centeredness, not clinging to I and me and mine. The best. And uh, the uncertain or the unreliable nature of all things. So these three characteristics, everything's impermanent. Everything's impersonal for the most part uh, when we're talking about the ultimate truth. And uh, everything's unreliable or uncertain or unsatisfactory and if we really live in harmony with those three realities not much to suffer about and it's because we're not in harmony it's we're not living with those wisdoms we're wanting things to be permanent we're rejecting the reality of impermanence when we cling when we get aversive when we take things personal we're out of we're not in wisdom when we're in that self-centered fear that we're born into, you know, again, not our fault. But with the Dharma practiced well, we can break out of that. Second question from the Yaka, he says, how does one cross over the flood? How does one cross the rugged sea? How does one overcome suffering? How is one purified? Buddha replies, by faith, one crosses over the flood. By diligence the rugged sea. By energy, one overcomes suffering. By wisdom, one is purified. So he's given him the same. It's, it's faith, it's uh, perseverance or diligence, energy, and wisdom. Again, the yaka says, well, how does one gain wisdom? How does one find wealth? How does one achieve acclaim? How does one bind itself to, uh, to friends? when passing from this world to the next how does one not sorrow one not grieve when we die the buddha says placing faith in the dhamma of the arahants for the attainment of nibbana from desire to learn one gains wisdom and one is if one is diligent and astute so what's the reframe here is when we hear the dharma now, we don't have a lot of arahants around. Arahant is this Buddhist word for uh, an, an enlightened being. He says, but placing faith in the possibility of awakening, maybe we have to downgrade it. I don't know how you feel. I'm, I'm happy with downgrading it to uh, people who seem wiser than we do. <laughs> maybe they're not fully enlightened, but people who uh, have experienced the Dharma and have made some progress and are suffering less, have more happiness. He says, by listening to them, and from this desire to learn, that you you know that has to come from within. I want to learn. I want to develop these skills. Um, then one gains wisdom if one is diligent and astute. So I like that there's this uh, qualification, because sometimes people have a lot of faith a lot of people that have read all the buddhist books and they believe buddhism's a good idea (laughs) it's a it's a good idea i like it you know it's a you know it's a kind of mental philosophical idea that people like makes sense it fits with psychology it fits with science it fits with you know a lot of the modern uh kind of scientific uh norms uh, neuroscience and such he says but that's not enough the way that i read this from a desire to learn one gains wisdom if one is diligent and astute so i'm reading into this perhaps but You have to actually be diligent. You got to get your ass on the cushion. You got to get yourself onto meditation retreat. You got to practice the five precepts. You got to really apply this stuff, not just have desire for it, not just have faith in it, but the diligence, the discipline of practice. And he goes on to answer the second part. He says, doing what is proper Dutiful, one with an with an with initiative finds wealth. So this is, you know, financial uh, advice. If you want to get rich, <laughs> right? And that's the question, how does one find wealth? And the Buddha says, okay, I'll answer it. Doing what is proper. So proper from a Buddhist perspective is a livelihood, proper livelihood, uh, finding a, Career, finding a livelihood that is not involved in killing, that is not involved in uh, diluting people by selling drugs or alcohol and kind of creating diluted mind states. Doing what is proper and dutiful. And so there's a lot of teachings here in uh, right livelihood, and it's a factor on the eightfold path. doing what is dutiful with initiative, right? Of that sort of like, I'm going to put some of my life's energy into a career, into work. I'm going to find a job. I'm going to find a, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to do something that's not causing harm to others. Hopefully, my own feeling is, hopefully that's actually helping. That's part of a solution that's inspiring, that's encouraging, that's protecting, that's doing something wise with initiative finds wealth. By truthfulness, one wins acclaim. Right? That, that question of like, how do you get popular? Be honest with truthfulness, one wins acclaim. By giving, generosity is what will get you friends. And there was that second part of that question. How do we, uh, the, the, using the term here, bind? Uh, I wanna say connect. How do we connect with true friendship? This is a big question for a lot of us. Where do I find my people? Where do I bind? Where do I connect? Uh, Where's my sangha? Where's my people? And, you know, the Buddha says, well, practice generosity. People want to be around people who are generous. Um, I had an interesting conversation with a friend earlier today who was kind of saying, like, was reflecting on uh, the experiences that I've had the last couple of years. And he said, well, I hope you, he was basically saying something like, I hope you learned not to be so generous. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you learn not to trust people and be so generous because you know they'll just stab you in the back. Haven't you learned anything? And I just had to like say like, I don't think I have that much really. Like I still so much want to be generous. I just feel like it's so important. Uh, even if there's betrayal around it, or even if people uh, don't appreciate it or take it for granted, or I just feel like it's such a core quality that we develop and that I want to keep trying to develop. Giving connects us to true friends. That is how one does not sorrow when passing from this world to the next. The, developing the wisdom, practicing the precepts, being generous, non-attached, then there's not so much sorrow when we die or our loved ones die. There's still sorrow, I think, personally. I think that grief is the appropriate response, but not that extra level of lamentation, that extra level of sorrow. Okay, and this last line, this is one of the things that stuck out to me. The Buddha replies, again, he says, The faithful seeker of the household life in whom dwells these four qualities, truth, dhamma, steadfastness, and generosity, does not sorrow when he passes on. So a lot of the teachings, the traditional teachings, are for monks. This is one of the places where he's saying the householders, that he's talking about us. He said, if we as householders practice honesty, truth, telling the truth to ourselves, to each other, uh, and it's hard, rigorous honesty, to really, you know, these precepts of abstaining from lying, even when it's easier to lie or, you you know, this topic of truth. Uh, which I, I'd break down to, um, you know, there's the truth. There's the lack of truth in omitting the truth when it's appropriate to to tell the truth. Omission, uh, exaggeration, minimalization, uh, obscuring or avoiding difficult conversations when the truth is appropriate. So this commitment to, you know, not just not lying, not just blatantly saying untruths, but to really being honest, living in the truth, having the hard conversations, telling the truth even when we don't want to. I say said, if you practice this level. Now, again, over and over, no judgment if you're not there yet. These are goals. These are, uh, you know, like, we don't have to be perfect, but we do. If you want to live a life free from sorrow, the more honesty we practice, the less sorrow we will create for ourselves. Self-control, generosity, and patience. Self-control is referring to renunciation. Again, it's a a reference to the five precepts. Nonviolence not killing, not stealing, not lying, being careful with our sexual energy, controlling, uh, renouncing behaviors that are gonna cause harm to ourselves or others, avoiding sexual misconduct. Half of when we take on the Dharma path, uh, half of it's like adding practices, add meditation, Add study, add participation in community, right? We add all, and then the other half is subtract. (laughs) Stop lying and stealing and cheating and killing. Add generosity, add service, add, stop the self-centered fear-based activities that most of humanity is engaged in. Generosity. Just reflecting on how much of it is a a part of your daily practice. There's another place where the Buddha says, if we truly understood the importance of generosity for our own karmic purification, for our own... He said, if you really understood it, you wouldn't let a single meal go by without sharing some of your food with someone who was hungry. Not one meal. That it would just be so on our radar that we would constantly be like, how can I help? If we really got the importance, we would, you know, and I think that the the meal is just a... I don't think it's as literal as uh, every meal you eat as much as it's every day. Some, regularly, we would be thinking, how can I be generous? How can I share some of my time, some of my energy, some of my resources? What am I doing to help others? Which is so radically different than how we are wired, which is like I, me, mine, and how can I get mine and keep mine? what a shift to what, well, how can I give, what do I have to offer? And sometimes it's financial and sometimes it's material and sometimes it's energetic being generous with, uh, even in a conversation, you know what people really love to be listened to. You know how fucking generous it is to sometimes just not insert ourselves into and just listen to people. If you really practice the generosity of listening, people will be like, "Wow, man, that's a nice person to talk to. <laughs> a good listener. Because so often we're inserting, you know somebody's saying something, and what are you do? and you're thinking about what you're gonna say about yourself next. <laughs> you know, you're gonna insert yourself into the conversation rather than just, Really being open and curious and giving that generous attention to someone else. So lots of levels of generosity. Oh, truth, dhamma, steadfastness, and generosity. Steadfastness. Oh, I like that. I don't even know what it means, but it just sounds cool. Steadfast it means something like committed. I'm all in. Last, uh, last week or a couple weeks ago, I was talking about like just shoot, you know, when you know, like when you have faith, not blind faith, but verified faith, when you've tried the practice, even you know, inevitably, you're going to hit periods of disillusionment, you're going to hit periods of doubt, you're going to hit periods of boredom. Steadfast is, I'm going to continue no matter what. My resolve is strong, and I'm going to keep going. When it's boring, I'm going to keep meditating. When it's, you know, repetitive, I'm going to keep, meditating i'm going to keep practicing the principles the the precepts the i'm going to keep giving even when i don't feel like giving i'm going to show up when i don't feel like showing up i'm going to be steadfast in my commitment to truth to awakening to both internal and external to helping be part of the solution create a positive change on this planet I'm going to be steadfast in my commitment. Not uh, it's not an optional anymore. Truth, self-control, generosity, steadfastness and patience. Ooh, that's a that's the biggest one of all. Steadfast and patient. Because like how long does this shit take? Right? You feel like that sometimes? Like how long you've been meditating and I gotta be steadfast and keep going. And I also have to be patient. I also have to accept the results. As the image used sometimes of practicing the dharma, this path of awakening is like planting a seed and watering it but you can't make it grow. (laughs) You ever try to make a plant grow? It has its own time, you know? And it's like, all you can do is plant the seed and keep watering it. I was talking about forgiveness the other night at a Refuge Recovery Talk. And I was talking about like, it's like 10 years of doing the forgiveness practice before I, for the first time in my life, came to a moment of complete forgiveness. Like, fucking patience. <laughs> and I wasn't patient the whole time. I was just steadfast. <laughs> I just kept doing the practice and I was a little bit impatient. Like, fuck, why am I still so attached to the pains of the past? And it's much easier, you know, looking back to be like, oh yeah, I did 10, 10 years. But was like in the midst of that practice, I didn't feel patient all of the time. I just felt uh, inspired. I just felt, uh, I don't know, sometimes desperate enough. I don't know if this has happened for you, but it happened for me pretty early on is I just got so disillusioned with the world. So utterly convinced. I, I hope this has happened for you. I hope it happens soon if it hasn't happened yet. Just utterly convinced that there's no material, sensual solution. The world will not provide the happiness that I seek. I know that for sure. Now, that having been said, I like to play in the world, but I don't think it's going to provide my happiness. I believe. At least 99%, <laughs> that my only hope is the Dhamma. That the, only, and I actually don't believe this just for me, I believe this for the whole world, <laughs> that our only hope for actual ease and well being and freedom is from training our own heart and mind to see clearly and respond wisely. Steadfast commitment to practicing the Dhamma, to being honest, and this quality of patience. I wouldn't consider myself a patient person, although I've probably become a little bit more patient over the years. You know, there are some people that just seem to be like really patient, like good at being patient. Any uh, skill and patience that I've developed, you know, has been developed through the Dharma practice. I certainly wasn't a patient person, and I still, even though I, I can wait for stuff internally, I don't like it. It's unpleasant. I want liberation now. (laughs) I want to, you know, I want, I want compassion. I want, I want it now. And of course, it doesn't work that way. So. Keep practicing, steadfast, keep going, keep going. Little, you know, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward. Anyways, I don't know if you found this um, interesting. I, I like it. How does it end? Oh, it ends by um, the yakka being convinced. He says, Today I have understood the good pertaining to the future life. Indeed, for my sake, the Buddha came. Today I have understood what a gift bears great fruit. And I myself will travel about from village to village, town to town, paying homage to the Buddha and to the excellence of the Dhamma. You know, so it starts with the guy being like, get the fuck out of my forest to being like, wow, like you actually know what you're talking about, I'm in. <laughs> and I will share this Dhamma, I'll share this commitment to truth and Dhamma and steadfastness and patience. So this is something that makes sense and I'm in. So those are some of my thoughts, um, questions, comments, clarifications. What do you think about this kind of teaching? If you're at home and you have a question, you can raise your hand at the bottom of the participants bar. Um, There's a little thing that raises your little blue hand. Or if you're in the room, you can just let me know. I see, testing my patience, I get it. Crystal, please. You can unmute yourself. No, yes, no. okay Michael what's your question jump in
1: sorry can you hear me
0: oh yes I can go
1: for okay it. I'm sorry <laughs> muted I don't know how to use this sometimes um so earlier you said something on like belief and then you said um, you don't believe so my question was kind of like um how like what w- was the, the whole with the faith thing um, yeah. so if we have belief
0: but then you don't believe kind of thing I felt like that was sort of like a contradiction um I'm sure yeah I'm I'm sure that I do contradict myself sometimes <laughs> for sure um what I'm trying to point to is my skepticism of spiritual or religious teachings that ask for blind faith. And that what I'm encouraging in my own experience is um, the willingness to explore spiritual religious teachings, but to really wait until you have verified faith, um, rather than just believing something. Experience it directly for ourselves, know that it's trustworthy What's, I think skepticism, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I put skepticism like a, a healthy uh, uh, skepticism above faith as a, a kind of spiritual quality. <laughs> I'd rather see people <laughs> questioning uh, stuff rather than believing it. But if we question, for, you know, for me, if I question mindfulness but practice it, then I have faith in it because I see this is how it works, um, If I question a lot of the teachings, but explore them, then I feel like they're trustworthy. Uh, And so, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm down on blind faith on kind of believe us because we say so.
1: (laughs) Okay. I get what you're saying. Thank you. All
0: right. Thank you. Please. Yeah, it was a
2: good talk. Sorry, I'm late. But uh, one thing you said that stood out was the uh, diligence of uh, you know I'm in recovery and we have to actually do it. Have to sit, have to actually sit down and actually meditate and do whatever reading we're doing. Um, and sure enough, you know I've been kind of slacking and then I recommitted this past week or so, to just really setting aside time to meditate in the morning and the night. And sure enough. I feel so much better. I feel so much more calmer and just, like, joyful. Um, but my question is, so that was good, like, the diligence is steadfast of it. Um, what I've been struggling with since day one with this is, and I think I even asked this, like, the first month I was here, was, like, I seem to go from, like, polar uh, sides of, like, I'm either in this sort of meditative Zen state, and then I sort of slip into this almost like sluggishness and sort of like apathy. And then I'm like, ah, fuck this. And I revert back to like this sort of like, almost like aggressive sort of like go-getter sort of attitude. But that, the problem with that is it always, it always leads to like burnout and tension and headaches and uh, burn bridges. and so it's so funny. It's like I cannot seem to find maybe it's gonna take some time to find like that middle ground of like still having that sort of like that zest that involved in in life, but not having it be so intense, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Just trying to find that, that sweet spot of like what how I want to show up to life. Yeah, there's something here that I seem to keep going back and forth right so I don't
0: know if that makes sense but it does I have a couple of thoughts I don't know if how much you guys at home could hear the um, comment and question but I'll um, I don't think I can repeat it but I'll just answer uh, answer it well in, in in a way I feel like it, it is that dilemma that a lot of us get into of the all or none either I'm meditating a lot and I'm you know, super uh, on it or I kind of pull back and I'm a little bit more looking to the world for the happiness. And that's the kind of like, um, and I also hear what you're saying of not loving uh, some of the maybe, what would you call like Zen kind of sluggishness. sluggishness, right. Right. So a couple of things. If that's happening, if we're using it um, as a withdrawal, maybe too much concentration in the practice and not enough mindfulness. Mindfulness by definition is turning towards what's happening and not away from it. And so if you're getting kind of sluggish and withdrawn, it might be because you're focusing too much on the breath or you know doing a little too much concentration practice and you wanna open some to the emotions, to the mind states. Uh, and so there, there might be something there in um, a more inclusive turning towards practice, not away from. Um, So you have to look for that in your sitting. The other thought that I had was um, in that, what you were referring to as like that go-getter, you know, kind of uh, action-based in the world that can stress you out. And in uh, this book that we were just studying, the Ajahn Amara book, he suggests micro meditations. He says, you know, sometimes we get so focused on our formal practice or our life, informal. He says, put some formal micro periods throughout your day. So you might consider this, the homework that I gave everyone in that class was I said, identify three things that you do every day that you're not usually really bringing mindfulness to, but that you'll start bringing mindfulness to. And so that can be uh, every time you check your email or the first time you check your email in the day, or uh, I'm going to take three mindful breaths. I'm going to bring that kind of quality of turning towards what's happening in the midst of activities at the office at, the home office, wherever we are these days, uh, or in the car, you know, if you're somebody that, you live in Los Angeles and you drive a lot, uh, or you bicycle or skateboard or whatever you get around, bringing saying like, when I get on my bicycle, I'm going to feel my hands on the handlebars or on the motorcycle or on the skate, whatever it is. And I'm gonna intentionally bring these sort of micro attention to the activities of my day. And I believe if you do that, you'll find less stressing out because you'll have all of those times where you're returning to the present and not so, because it's the being in the planning, being in the, that gives you the headache probably. Yeah. So that coming back. You know, identify three three things that you do regularly. and it, Also eating, I don't know if you know the eating meditation But bringing mindfulness, they say that we put something in our mouth. I forget what the statistic is, but it's surprising. Like most people put something in their mouth uh, some great number of times a day, whether it's a meal or a snack or a piece of gum or a toothpick or something. Uh, And if you take that on as a practice of like, I'm gonna bring mindfulness to breakfast and lunch and any snacks in between, Rather than I'm going to eat while I'm working or while I'm watching, or I'm just going to bring some attention to this. I'm going to reground in the present every time I put something in my mouth. So, looking for those opportunities throughout the day um, to engage your mindfulness so it's not just on the cushion in the morning or evening. Yeah, no, I really like that
2: conscious mindfulness because, although, like, Action and being of service is great. It's, yeah. It's very helpful at the same time. Like I think what's happening too is I'm using it as sort of like an escape, as an avoidance. So like perhaps bringing, you know, mindful awareness to the service, be very helpful. So.
0: more turning towards. Yeah. 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 That's good. good. Um. Two more questions, uh, Michael. Did you still have your question? I lowered your hand i think
1: it's it's a just some quick commentary and then followed by by a question like i like how you outlined um finding out things through the dharma through your own experience like through verification because you know when i came to the dharma um in refuge you know i was spiritually bankrupt and you know being a relief-seeking missile it didn't really pay off. Like um, instant gratification outside of myself, it just didn't pay off. So being involved in this practice and doing it and being extremely skeptical and it being counterintuitive and all that stuff, you know, just doing it and doing it, I found out that it worked. And I, I still do it incrementally. And It's definitely my nature to you know, question things too, but over and over again in my in my own experience so far, um, and I've just come to it. It, the Dharma always seems to work. Um, and, uh, I'm grateful for that. And also the quick question, um, is those su- those massive Suda books, like where do you get those?
0: Um, most are. of them are published by, um, wisdom publications. Okay. Um, so if you, if you Google sutas, wisdom publications are the translations by Bhikkhu Bodhi. Um, okay. The kind of most most common current translations. Thank you. Yeah. Have fun in there. Richard, last question.
3: Thank you, Nog. Thank you for the teaching tonight. Appreciate it. What was the name of the sutta that you were reading from?
0: Oh, uh, let's see. It is, oh, shit, I lost the page.
3: That's all right.
0: Uh, no, here it is. Nope, that's not it. No, nope, I lost it. That's right. We'll get
3: back to Oh, you. no, I
0: found it. It is the Get Out Sutta. <laughs> it's the Book of Verses. It's the 12th Sutta on the chapter of the Yakas, the Connected Discourses with the Yakas. So it is Sutta 443, 12.
1: Okay,
3: we'll see if we can find that.
0: It is like on the- page 316 of the Connected Discourses. Yeah, I know that. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I can actually find that. Um,
3: I, so, this is a big picture question having to do with taking stock of one's um, practice over longer periods of time. I like what His Holiness the Dalai Lama says about looking at yourself about every 10 years. And, and you and I have talked about this and, you know, with some of us that have had longer term practice and noticing the changes that happen over 10 years. What I'm interested in and the question has to do with are in, in the in the teachings and the sutras, are there milestones that are kind of pointed out or just changes of character that one can use as uh, markers for making progress? So it isn't all just, you know, decades and decades of sitting and at the end of it, you go like, what was that about?
0: The only, I, I don't know the answer, I don't know the suttas well enough to to really tell you the answer to that, Richard. The only thing that I can think of is um, the kind of the stream entry, the four levels of awakening are the only markers that I can tell. The first level is stream entry, once returner, non-returner, arahant. Those are the four levels of, of awakening that are talked about in the suttas. Um, what's your experience
3: looking at yourself a decade at a time
2: I like the
0: I like the decade um, I like the decade kind of suggestion of looking back over the decades you know and and again there's this kind of steadfastness um, you know and if you're brand new and you think fuck 10 years that's a long time or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 But that's what I, you know, this last couple of weeks, I've really been on this sort of like, just fucking commit and keep going if if it resonates with you. Like if you, you know, like you don't have to commit until you have verified faith. But once you do, then just do it and keep going. And, you know, this kind of be patient and be, uh, you know, persevere. Um, I don't know. I mean, as far as my own, I feel like forgiveness has been a big mile marker of like because that's one of the sort of tests you can you know you can just look at your mind and say like who do i hate today (laughs) do i still hate people and you know you can start to see it really clearly of like oh i don't hate the way that i used to i don't have the kind of resentments the kind of judgments even you know uh, uh, so there's there's a lot of uh, am i becoming more forgiving am i becoming more kind more generous right? Like what's our relationship to giving, to being of service, to, you know, is that becoming easier? Like, oh, there's progress there. Um, You know, the mile marker around the uh, three characteristics. That's what I was asking for after the meditation. You know, is it changing? Am I understanding impermanence? Am I less attached than I used to be? Am I uh, less, uh, you know, looking for an unreliable refuge in a uh, impermanent thing. Um, I don't know. There's, there's, there's so much to it. I don't know if I'm really answering.
3: No, you are. It's a big question. Thanks.
0: You know, the Buddha just breaks it down to around the, um, the 10, uh, you know, ways that we create suffering for ourselves. How much doubt versus faith.
3: Yeah. One more thing. I guess I'm, I'm paralleling it up with recovery because I'm Uh in recovery. And, you know, the markers for me about recovery had to do with when the obsession was lifted Hmm. and when the cravings got lessened and also when I committed, there it is again, the steadfastness, to a program that could carry me into a a clean and sober life and and, and embrace it and really embrace it, not fight it. Right. That kind of stuff.
0: I bet there, I don't feel eloquent about speaking about that right now, but I, I bet we, I could, you know, maybe I'll think about it for a Dharma talk next week or something, but I bet that there is a similarity for, um, you know, the the lifting of the obsession, the lifting of, the, you know, the sort of seeing through the self-centeredness and not suffering so much, um, which is such a relief. Uh, And how long it takes is different for everyone. You know, in these suttas, Over and over, people hear one Dharma talk and get it. (laughs) The instant enlightenment. And then the rest of us, the reality is the rest of us, it takes years of practice. Um, You know the, is it Milarepa, the story of, um, I don't think if it's Milarepa, one of the the, the, the Tibetan sort of famous Tibetan yogis where he has all of this compassion and he used to be a, I think he murdered a whole bunch of people doing some black magic. Is it Milarepa, Richard? Yeah, Milarepa. He had murdered a bunch of people and then he kind of, you know, really focused on um, his dharma practice and he became this being of great compassion. And at one point somebody came and asked him like, well, how did you get there? Like, how long does it take? And he pulls up his robes and shows them his bare ass that's covered in calluses. (laughs) And he says, from sitting on my ass and developing compassion, you know, like that's how I got here of the decades of the calluses on my ass, (laughs) from the meditating in this cave that he was living in. Um, That's how we get there.
2: Thanks. Welcome.
0: Okay. Okay. That's it. We're gonna, uh, you know, for those people who are here, anybody at home that comes sometimes, uh, I'm gonna suspend the in-person. There's nine, 10 people in the room. People have been coming with the rise in the COVID numbers. uh, LA County is saying, close down the in-person stuff. Um, Somebody here told me I wasn't supposed to be meeting this whole time anyways, but I I, I thought it was cool. I'm told now that it's not cool. Um, so we're going to stop the in-person classes at against the stream, at least for a couple weeks. Let's see. Let's see what the, my own feeling is I want to mostly be in line, uh, with the kind of public health suggestions. And, uh, at one point they said it was okay if we met in socially distanced small groups, less than 12, we've mostly maintained that. Now they're saying don't meet together inside at all. Um, and I'm not so interested in teaching the class on the roof or outside. So um, I'll just be doing class only on Zoom for the next couple of weeks. We'll send out an email, uh, you know, check, check with us about, and we'll post something on social when you can come back to, to live class, but we'll suspend it for a couple weeks at least. Um, but we'll be here for you Zoom people. I'll be here for you Zoom people every Monday and uh, welcome. Class is done by donation. So um, please give some donations. We talked a lot about generosity tonight. Uh, If you understood the importance of generosity, you would share a sandwich with me every day. Um, So uh, please help us pay the rent on the meditation center and support me as a teacher and support our Sangha. Um, If you can afford a $15 donation, please give $15. That's uh, what we suggest. And if you can't afford that, know that you're always welcome here. And, you know, attending on Zoom. Also, we rely on your uh, donations. Consider becoming a monthly supporter. All of that information is on the website. There's a link to it. Rachel has posted in the chat. Thank you for your service tonight, Rachel. Good to see everybody. And may any merit that gets developed, created through our practice, be shared outward in all directions with all beings everywhere. And uh, see you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.